Hello and welcome to the Virtual Midwife Podcast, a show for pregnant women who want to make informed decisions about their health and the health of their babies. I'm your host, the Virtual Midwife, Karen Wilmot, and having worked in hospitals, communities, and independently around the world, in this podcast, I share some of the many lessons I've learned in the labor room. I'll be interviewing thought leaders and change makers, each one of them quietly fueling the silent revolution to restore normality to childbirth, to support women's choice and restore respect. I have a deep belief in the mind-body connection, so I'll be sharing some powerful meditations for pregnancy and birth. You'll find the show notes and transcripts on my blog, and while you're there, sign up for the free gift so that you can stay up to date with the courses and retreats that I offer. I work with women online and in person via my online platform, thevirtualmidwife.com. Follow me on social media and subscribe to my YouTube channel, The Virtual Midwife, to get more tips and tools and techniques for labor and birth. So thank you very much for joining me today, Lily. Lily Nichols is a registered dietitian and nutritionist. And I saw from your website that you actually hate the word dietitian. And <laughs> I can understand why. <laughs> yes. But um, she's also a certified diabetes educator. And most people know her for her pioneering work on nutrition for gestational diabetes, which is a type of diabetes that is first diagnosed or very first recognized during pregnancy. Her work in this field has spanned from nutrition public policy to clinical practice to consulting to research and in these roles, it became clear that the conventional prenatal dietary advice, in other words, the US government dietary guidelines, does not reflect the latest scientific evidence, nor does it provide equivalent nutritional value when compared to the diets consumed by traditional cultures. She was dismayed when following these guidelines that a large proportion of her clients with gestational diabetes failed diet therapy, but she had to wonder if they really failed or if the diet failed them. And I find that sentence really, really interesting because um, one of the things that I do as the virtual midwife is assist women with breastfeeding after, you know, I, I follow them throughout pregnancy and then follow up for the first six weeks. And so often I meet women who feel as if they failed in breastfeeding. And I always say that it's not them that have failed, but the system that have failed them. Because without, with the right support and the right education and the right information, breastfeeding is so much easier. And it's so easy with the amount of information that's so wrong at the moment for, for mums to feel as if they failed, but really it's us who failed them. So it's just a little bit of an aside. But um, after extensive research, Lily developed her real food approach for managing gestational diabetes. And the outcomes were far better than conventional diet therapy. Fewer women failed the diet, meaning they did not require insulin or blood sugar lowering medication. Prenatal weight gain stayed within normal and they had healthier infants overall. And all of this encouraged her to write her first book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, to get the message out to other moms, dietitians, and healthcare providers. And within a few months, it became and remains the best-selling gestational diabetes book on the market. It's used in several maternal nutritional courses at the university level, and it is recommended to medical students, and has even influenced prenatal nutrition public policy internationally. 
And of course, the benefits of real food aren't limited to women with gestational diabetes. But what Lily manages to do is to take prenatal nutrition advice out of the dark ages and provide an easy to follow guide for making the best food and lifestyle choices during pregnancy. So Lily, thank you so much for joining me today. As the virtual midwife, a lot of what I do is help women throughout pregnancy. And I specialize in preparing women for birth. And I know the value of being prepared and of creating a strong support system and that deep sense of trust. And it's not about finding um, information because there's so much information out there. It's about finding the correct information. And I think having looked through your book, what you managed to do is bring the correct information to the reader and just make it so much easier for them and help them to understand the real value of, of good nutrition, not just during pregnancy, but in, in everyday life. Tell me a little bit more about, about the book and how it came about. Sure. And thank you for the detailed introduction. I feel well set up to answer all the questions. How the book came about. I, let's see, I've worked in prenatal nutrition for most of my career. Um, and much of my work, as you shared in my bio, related to gestational diabetes. And when I started, you know, looking for a different approach for managing gestational diabetes more effectively with nutrition, I started coming across a lot of research showing that uh, even very mildly elevated blood sugar below the diagnostic threshold of gestational diabetes has some adverse outcomes, can have some adverse outcomes for infants, including um, certain developmental problems such as uh, congenital heart defects or neural tube defects. And I thought, you know, geez, given that 50% of the U.S. population at this moment has some form of blood sugar issue, whether diabetes or prediabetes, most of which are undiagnosed, I really should be getting this information out to a, a broader group of people beyond the people who are, you know, officially diagnosed with gestational diabetes. And, you know, I'd written my first book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, not really sure how big of an impact it would have, but I was really you know, humbled that it, it gained popularity rather quickly. And I started getting asked from practitioners, will you write a book on regular prenatal nutrition? At the time, I had recently become pregnant, so I had to kind of go through my own pregnancy, have my baby, um, but it was top of mind that whole time. So I, I started writing this book in the first year postpartum with my son, I just felt really compelled to get the information out. One of the things you talk about is the misconceptions of testing for gestational diabetes. And I know that that's something that a lot of the women that I work with question me about. Is it absolutely necessary? I'm not sure if it's done in the States, but the typical glucose tolerance test that's usually done at around about 28 weeks of pregnancy, where they come in and on the, you know, they're told to fast in the morning and then come in, we check their blood sugar, give them 75 grams of glucose and then test an hour later. What are your thoughts on testing for gestational diabetes at 28 weeks and the, of all the different methods? Yeah, well, I, what I've come to realize is that there is probably not a one size fits all best way to test for gestational diabetes. I mean, any, any test has, has the chance of giving you a false positive and false negative. However, for, you know, the, the glucose tolerance test or the glucola, it's the same thing by a different name is, is considered the gold standard right now. And the method you're describing with the 75 gram glucose tolerance test and correct me if I'm wrong but your ladies just come in for one test right and then they're they're done 
Yes. Yes. Unless it gives a high reading, in which case they'd be going for further testing. Okay. Meaning a 100 gram glucose tolerance test? Um, they would probably repeat the test and then they would be treated for gestational diabetes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 So um, there's been controversy around the way a glucola is done and the uh, international uh, diabetes and pregnancy study group is, has looked at the different ways to do the glucola and the most accurate and reliable way is with a, a 75 gram two hour glucose tolerance test done fasting. And most countries outside of the US do that test and it has the benefit of being a, a one-time thing. You either pass or you fail and then you know to, you know to test your blood sugar if, you're, if your levels come out high from that test. The way that most practitioners do it in the United States is an older version where it's actually two glucose tolerance tests. So they give you one of 50 grams. If you fail that screening, then they give you a second one with 100 grams. And the blood sugar levels that set the cutoffs and, and also just the methods in with which the tests are done are mean that fewer women get diagnosed with gestational diabetes than maybe should, meaning a lot of women with just mildly elevated blood sugar pass those tests. So I think if we're going to bother testing, we really should move in the direction of doing the 75 gram test. There are some caveats with the test, which is that for women who have been following a low carbohydrate diet during their pregnancy, they will be at a greater risk for having a false positive from the test. And it's been known since at least the 1960s that this happens to whether pregnant or not. Um, your body is more primed to process a large quantity of sugar at once if you're regularly consuming a higher carbohydrate diet. So that's one situation in which I think we may want to look at different options, such as home blood sugar monitoring for a couple of weeks to see what's happening with a woman's blood sugar. I also think there is a rationale for testing women in early pregnancy via hemoglobin A1C, which is a very simple blood test. You don't have to drink any sugar drink leading into it, just can be added to the prenatal labs, but it helps uh, give you an idea of a woman's average blood sugar over the last two to three months. So that can catch essentially pre-diabetes that was happening before pregnancy. But in the research, when they've looked at women with high A1Cs, and then give them a glucose tolerance test, a high A1C accurately predicts failing a glucose tolerance test by 98.4%. So we could, if testing early, catch women earlier in pregnancy, help them get you know, a better lifestyle plan earlier on, and minimize high blood sugar for another whole trimester, really. Um, so I think that would be also be great to add in addition to all the clarity around what to do at 28 weeks. It certainly would. And, and it would be um, getting that nutritional advice in, in the trimester that it really counts as well in the major developmental stages of the first trimester. So exactly. what would the um, prenatal nutrition advice or nutritional management of gestational diabetes, if that test was done in the first trimester and shown to be high, what would you advise a woman to change in her diet to manage that? Well, the biggest thing, regardless of when a woman is diagnosed or, or realizes her blood sugar is high, the first thing always is learning to, learning to figure out which foods raise your blood sugar the most. 
And there is some, you know, basic nutritional teaching that can be done around that. And there is also some uh, home blood sugar monitoring by, you know, pricking your finger and testing your blood sugar after eating that also comes into play. So from the nutritional side of things, if we just look at which foods are highest in carbohydrates, that's often really helpful for women because carbohydrates of your three macronutrients, carbs, fat, and protein, carbohydrates are the ones that raise your blood sugar the most. So the first thing that I would do in my teaching is explain to women which foods are the highest in carbohydrates so she can be aware of those foods and start to notice if having larger portions of those foods leads her blood sugar to be high or not. Um, the, the ideal amount of carbohydrates for each woman is going to be different. And so that's where the home blood sugar monitoring comes in because you can see, you know, hey, maybe somebody can tolerate 30 grams of carbohydrates at a meal and have great blood sugars or maybe even 45, but you might only be able to get away with like 15 or so. And you only figure that out by testing your blood sugar and comparing it to targets. So that's, that's definitely the first one. Um, and then of course, I also teach which foods don't raise your blood sugar because you still have to eat. And that's a big mistake that happens as a woman will get diagnosed. Um, here are all these scary statistics about what could happen to her or her baby. And then they end up just starving themselves because they think they can't eat anything. So I, I also tend to shift a lot of my teaching also towards the foods that you don't have to worry about portion size with necessarily and still have great blood sugars. So any of your, you know, meats, eggs, fish, nuts, seeds, and non-starchy vegetables, meaning the ones other than things like potatoes or sweet potatoes, um, they, they tend not to raise the blood sugar very much. And healthy fats, fats don't raise your blood sugar either. So avocado, olive oil, the fats that are naturally in your in butter or on, on your meat, um, those don't raise the blood sugar either. So there's actually this whole large percentage of the diet actually that, that can be eaten freely without worrying so much about portion control. And there's a lot of misconceptions and myths about foods that you need to avoid during pregnancy, which I know cause a lot of women a lot of stress. Can you um, help me debunk a few of those myths, some of the common ones that you get faced with and that you talk about in your book? Sure thing. Yeah, this is a really common question. I feel like women find out they're pregnant and the first question is, what can't I eat? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and As opposed to what can I eat and what should I eat? Exactly. So the, the foods to avoid list that you hear are, are there for a reason and they're there because your immune system makes some adaptations to allow your baby to grow. And as a result, your body becomes slightly more susceptible to certain infections. And this can include um, illnesses from bacteria or viruses or parasites that are in food. However, when you start looking at the data on which foods are most likely to cause you to get sick or which ones are most commonly linked to outbreaks of foodborne illness, some of the ones that are on the list, such as eggs with runny yolks, are actually rarely responsible for outbreaks. And also, there's a very low risk that your food is actually going to be contaminated with something. So like eggs with runny yolks, the chances that you'll come across an egg that's contaminated with salmonella is 1 in 30,000. And it's been found to be sevenfold lower if the chickens are raised on pasture or in organic farming methods. So very, very slim. Now, in the case of eggs, if you are a person who only likes your eggs with runny yolks and you just can't stomach them any other way and you're going to avoid them because of this theoretical food safety concern, 
there's actually a lot of nutrition that you'd be missing out on mm. from the eggs. Probably the most important one is a nutrient called choline, which is important for your baby's brain development. And it is found in other foods, but not nearly in the concentration that it's found in, in eggs. And women who don't consume eggs actually consume about half the choline in their diet compared to women who eat eggs. So in something like the case of eggs, I feel like the nutritional trade-off is actually um, greater than the risk of getting sick from eggs with runny yolks in the first place. That's one example. I can go through more if you want. It might get a little lengthy. Well, it's interesting that you, you brought up the eggs because I know several women who stop eating mayonnaise because of the egg content of mayonnaise. So what would your advice be around that? Because that's interesting. Yeah, and well, in the States, uh, all the mayonnaise is actually pasteurized, so it's not even a raw egg risk uh, here. But if the only mayonnaise they have is from raw egg, or maybe you're making it at home on your own, I would say if you're going to do it, then I would go for the best quality eggs you can get. I mean, salmonella only gets, that's the, the bacteria we're concerned about with eggs. Salmonella only gets in eggs when the chickens have salmonella in their gastrointestinal tract. That's where the egg is, is formed. It's all the same hole in chickens. <laughs> they, yeah. If your eggs are coming from chickens that are raised in a healthy environment, not in confinement, outside where they're able to peck and eat grass and bugs and other things, they're not in a crowded area where they're spreading disease as much as chickens that are raised in confined barn situations. Hence the way lower rates of salmonella in eggs raised in those conditions. So I would say just get the best quality eggs that you can when making mayonnaise, or you could like cook the egg yolk, <laughs> you know, before you, if you're really concerned, you could do that or yeah. purchase store-bought so the egg yolk is pasteurized. And one of the other common questions is sushi. Well, sushi is an interesting one. Um, what I found interesting when looking into the sushi thing was that not all countries have warnings against sushi. So in many parts of Asia, it's considered normal to consume raw fish during pregnancy. And even in the UK, on the NHS website, they actually condone eating sushi because the sushi-grade fish has all been frozen for a period of time to a, a level where it, it kills any active parasites or anything like that. So they actually say sushi's fine to eat as long as you're getting it from a reputable establishment and it's eaten fresh. So I think that's another one where it's, not necessarily sushi is always unsafe. It's like bad quality sushi or sushi that has been sitting out would be considered unsafe. If, if it smells fishy, don't eat it. If it's not yeah. freshly prepared from a reputable restaurant, don't eat it. If it's prepackaged at like a grocery store and it's a raw fish type of sushi, again, I probably wouldn't eat it. I would just eat the freshest possible one you can get. But I think our, our fears about the food safety thing have been oversold, at least in the US, the most common way that you're gonna get sick from food, about half of food poisoning outbreaks are actually linked back to fresh produce, mostly leafy greens and, and raw fruits, mm. um, especially prepackaged and pre-cut fruits and vegetables. Nobody warns pregnant women to avoid fruit or to avoid salads, but we have all these warnings about other foods when the actual chances you get sick from them is, is not as high, so you should be just as cautious about making sure your salad greens are super fresh and your fruit is super fresh as you should, you know, your, your animal products, eggs and, and fish. That's a really valid point. 
And um, just to do one more, I noticed that there's a rise in the amount of people that I'm seeing with allergies to peanuts. Sometimes they will ask me if they have an allergy to peanuts, would their child, the baby they're carrying, necessarily be allergic to peanuts? It's not always a direct relationship. Sometimes your kid will, sometimes they won't. I mean, obviously, if you have a food allergy yourself, you can't consume the food, so don't eat it, stay away from it. It doesn't necessarily mean that your child will have that allergy. From women who don't have a peanut allergy, there's actually been mixed research showing that consumption of, of commonly allergenic foods like peanuts during pregnancy may up the risk of allergy, or the latest thinking and the latest finding from studies is that consumption of peanuts during pregnancy decreases the risk of allergies among children because they've been exposed to small amounts mm, mm. throughout their life. Mm, mm. Um, that makes sense. I don't know if you saw the interesting new study that came out linking the use of baby wipes to higher incidence of allergies in infants. And this is baby wipes on the actual baby themselves, where they believe that the baby wipes disrupt the, the skin barrier on the baby and then allergen, food allergens that are like particulates that are left on a person's hands, a caregiver's hands after eating, that then touch the baby's skin can absorb. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> There's so many possible things going on here, right? I think the best way to ensure your baby's immune system develops properly is to ensure that you keep really good care of your immune system, which would be avoiding things that seem to flare up any immune issues for you, including avoiding foods that are known allergens, but also really taking care of your gut microbiome, meaning the healthy bacteria that live in their, in your gut, because it's estimated that like 70% of your immune system is actually located in your gut. So really keep your probiotics and flora healthy during pregnancy probably has a carryover effect on, on your infant. And in fact, they do show that in studies. I'm not just pulling that out of thin air. So obviously in saying that, in order for you to keep your gut healthy and your immune system healthy, there's certain foods that you would say are essential in order to do that. What would you say the top five essential foods are if you could bring it down to five, or would there be more than that? There would probably be more than that. Um, you know, we're, there's nutrients in many different foods that are, that are valuable for our health. There are definitely some that I can highlight, though, for their specific benefits. And coming back to the egg thing, eggs definitely make the list for anyone who um, can eat eggs, meaning you don't have a food allergy to them. They are a very wise addition to your diet during pregnancy, especially eggs with the yolks. So they have that important B vitamin-like compound called choline that is absolutely vital for your baby's brain development. They show that women who get more choline, their infants actually have better memory and cognition and faster reaction time. So that's a really important food. There are many, many other benefits, but I'll, I'll stop with the choline. Liver is also a fantastic food during pregnancy, which is a surprise for a lot of people because many women have been uh, warned against it. But it mm -hmm. is one of the most nutrient-dense foods in our diets. And up until the last 50 or so years, organ meats were a, a really valued part of our diets. I mean, if you harvested an animal, you wouldn't throw away any of the parts. You don't waste any. And um, the organs are the most nutrient-dense part. And especially high in some nutrients that are hard to get 
in your diet or that women are often deficient in. So for example, liver is about 200 times more concentrated in vitamin B12 than muscle meats, meaning like steak or ground beef or something like that. Um, it's also very, very high in iron in a really easy to absorb form. It's high in vitamin A, it's high in choline, it's high in zinc. Um, all of these nutrients have really beneficial effects on pregnancy and can reduce certain pregnancy complications. So that's a, a fantastic one. And if people are curious about the research on it being too high in vitamin A, that's something I would direct them to look at uh, in the book. I would also say meat on the bone, slow cooked meat or bone broth is a really valuable source of nutrition. And again, we kind of have to rewind the clock to our grandmothers or great grandmothers era where you didn't waste any parts of the animal. We now know there is a very important amino acid called glycine in these foods um, that's concentrated in the bone, skin, and connective tissue of meat. And it becomes conditionally essential during pregnancy. It's required for your baby's DNA, for their skeletal development, bone, skin, organ development. It's also required for your stretching skin, for your uterus, for the integrity of your amniotic sac. So many things. Integrity of your perineum, you know, if you start going into birth. It's tough to get in your diet if you don't include some of those foods. So I think that it's really valuable to use all parts of the animal, you know, purchase meat on the bone, cook your bones down into broth, just like your great grandma would do, um, and, and reap the benefits. Definitely vegetables. We can't leave out vegetables. Those are a highly valuable source of nutrition, rich in so many different vitamins and minerals, and fiber as well, uh, really helpful for managing your digestion and staying regular. That's kind of an obvious one, so I'll, I'll go past it pretty quick. And then uh, I've lost count of how many I've gone through, but I'll go with one more, which is salmon, fatty fish, and other seafood. And the reason these are so valuable, I mean, like all foods, there's many reasons because food is not just one or two nutrients. It's a whole combination of dozens of different nutrients all working together. But these foods are one of your primary sources of a special fatty acid for your baby's brain development, which is called DHA. And uh, outside of fatty fish and seafood, the only other place you'll find it is in certain algae oil supplements. So for women who don't eat this, that's definitely something to look at. But they find better brain development among children of mothers who consume um, 12 ounces or more of fish a week. And it's generally recommended that women meet about 300 or so milligrams of DHA per day or more. There seem to be benefits even if you have um, larger quantities of this. But DHA is, you know, essential. There's also iodine in these foods. Seafood is definitely the richest source of iodine. That's also crucial for your health in pregnancy, your thyroid health, and also your baby's brain development. So a lot of these things end up circling back to, you know, what nutrients do they contain? Why are they valuable? How are they important for a mother's health? And how do they affect your baby's development? And that's how these things end up making my list. Now, despite the vegetables and the fiber, all the others would be foods that a vegan wouldn't be able to eat. So how would a vegan mom manage to get all of those nutrients if she was not eating the salmon and the fatty fish and the bone broths and liver eggs? Yeah, it's a, it's a nutritional conundrum. Um, and I include a pretty lengthy, fully cited section in the book on that. Um, I personally, for ethical reasons for my profession, I, I can't professionally endorse a vegan diet during pregnancy. I know some women will choose that 
anyways, but knowing what I know and knowing the nutrients that are left out of the discussion on the, you know, professional guidelines on pregnancy, such as glycine, which is essential to consume during pregnancy, it's likely impossible to meet that on a vegan diet. And that's something that would be very challenging to supplement because even the supplemental sources are usually animal sources like collagen or gelatin. For a woman who is consuming eggs and dairy products, I think it's much more doable to meet most of your nutrient needs from food and then add in some specific supplements on top of that. So for example, vitamin B12 is a really wise addition in larger amounts that are provided in prenatal vitamin, by the way, because we now have research showing that vitamin B12 needs are triple what our current recommendations are. If a woman's not consuming eggs very regularly and in, in decent quantities, a choline supplement might be warranted. And also considering a DHA supplement for sure. So that algae-based DHA would be a really good addition. I, I do have a section on this, you know, tips to optimize a vegetarian diet, because I know this is a really common question. And I do want to give women the best chances, regardless of whatever their food choices are, for meeting it from food or from the addition of, of more supplements. And if a woman was following a regular diet that included meats and fish and chicken, what supplements, if any, would you recommend or would you say, are they necessary? I think for the, most women, a prenatal vitamin makes a lot of sense. I mean, even if you're eating mostly nutrient-dense foods, there's probably going to be time periods where you're not eating the healthiest, such as when first trimester, trimester nausea hits or with food aversions, kind of a, an insurance policy of sorts. I definitely don't think it replaces real food. If I did, I wouldn't bother writing a whole book about real food for pregnancy. But um, I do think it's a, it's a good idea, an insurance policy to have uh, a prenatal vitamin. Based on the data we're seeing on uh, vitamin D deficiency in pregnancy, and just vitamin D deficiency as a population as a whole, I think a vitamin D supplement is often warranted beyond what's in a prenatal, if we look at the latest data. For somebody who gets a lot of sun exposure in equatorial latitudes uh, without sunscreen, their vitamin D levels might be great and they might not need it. So that's something that you can get a blood test for to decide. Another one would be like fish oil. For women who aren't consuming fish regularly, it seems that about a minimum of 12 ounces per week can meet your DHA needs. But if you're not doing that, maybe you have food aversions, maybe Seafood isn't your favorite thing. Um, it's, it's certainly acceptable to do a DHA supplement or a fish oil supplement to meet those needs. And then there are others that can be just added in, you know, based on what's happening for a woman. So maybe her, maybe she's anemic and an iron supplement makes sense. Maybe um, she's tending towards preeclampsia and her blood pressure is getting high, like a magnesium supplement might make sense. Um, but I, I don't think beyond those three, there's there's many that are that are like must-haves. Um, but I do go through those in the book if people want to pick and choose the ones that make sense for them. A folic acid is one of the ones that they generally start before they even fall pregnant. And I know that there's controversy about folic acid and folate. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Sure. Yeah. And I'm glad actually you bring up folate because that one's usually, that one's essentially always covered in a prenatal vitamin. Um, so that's something that you wouldn't necessarily need 
additional amounts if you're getting a prenatal, uh, but folate is very important. Um, the controversy, well, the benefits of folate or folic acid is that it's been shown at a population level to reduce the risk of neural tube defects and, you know, serious, serious anomalies like spina bifida. So it is very important for babies developing neural tube and brain, especially in the early parts of pregnancy. So those sorts of defects actually happen in the first eight weeks of pregnancy. So that's oftentimes before a woman knows she's pregnant, hence the recommendation for supplementing early. The controversy stems from the fact that a large percentage of the population, um, anywhere from 40 to 60 percent, has a genetic difference in their ability to convert folic acid, which is a synthetic version of folate, um, into its active form in your body. And that means that supplemental folic acid might not be helpful for those women, or in some cases could be harmful. So what a lot of practitioners are now shifting their focus to is supplementing with a an active form of folate called methylfolate. And there's a couple different forms as well, but I try not to confuse people and just focus on on one that you can look for, methylfolate. Um, and that'll have all the same benefits of folic acid with, without any of the downsides, whether or not you have this genetic mutation, which is called MTHFR, your body can utilize it just fine. So um, I personally recommend a prenatal vitamin that has that type of uh, folate in it. And I recently read some research, or is it, for, before I go back to the research, but is it possible to have too much folate or folic acid before and during pregnancy. And the reason I ask that question is because I'm seeing a lot of babies who have been diagnosed with tongue tie. And yeah. some of the research that's coming up is that it's related to the folate, you know, because it's being given to prevent neural tube defects. And in that beginning when everything is developing from the center outwards, that there is an overdevelopment of the frenulum right. causing the tongue tie. Have you read up about that or is, have you got any comments on that? Yeah, I have seen, I have seen a little bit of discussion around uh, midline defects, as they call it, and, and its relationship to folic acid. I mean, folic acid is, is involved in the reproduction of cells and in rapidly developing cells especially which is something that's happening <laughs> when you're growing a baby mm. i can't say i've seen a definitive research paper or handful of research papers saying a strong yes or no but um it is something that i see circulating around the maternal care sphere that people are kind of concerned about and you know we had we had concerns about folic acid you know a decade or more ago because they, you know, they started fortifying the food supply in the U.S. Mm -hmm. with folic acid a while ago, sort of a means to hit, you know, especially underserved populations, people are, that are consuming a lot of refined grains. It's like it, it does make sense that if that's the main food source and you're not getting folate that would naturally be in the whole grain or in other nutrient-dense foods, that will at least make sure you meet this nutrient need. And it, and it did at a population level reduce. Um, the levels of neural tube defects, but they also found that at the same time it increased the level of colon cancer, particularly like small, you know, what should have been benign polyps that would go away actually progressing into full-blown colon cancer. And the idea was that 
the folic acid is so readily taken up directly from the gastrointestinal tract that those rapidly developing, rapidly dividing cells, which cancer cells are, we're like feeding off of the high amounts of folic acid. So I, I do think it's like from a, a mechanistic, like physiologic, biochemical standpoint, it does make sense to me that it could play a role in midline defects, but I, I don't have like solid, I don't have a solid proof yet to say, a, a, you know, a strong yes or a no. I just think we know from all the other things that folate does in our body and all the ways that disruption of our of our folate cycle can can mess up other processes in our body. It makes sense to just supplement with the form that anybody's body can use versus this one form that 40 to 60% of us aren't as readily able to use. You know, it's just sort of like why not supplement with the be- with the better version? We just have to wait for supplement companies to catch up and start using it instead of folic acid. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, you know, also at the end of the day, a tongue tie is treatable, whereas a neural tube defect is irreversible. That's absolutely right. So we would rather, <laughs> we would rather prevent the neural tube defects. Something else I wanted to chat about that is particularly close to me helping moms with breastfeeding is the impact of nutrition on breast milk quality. And certainly yes. the impact of nutrition just on breastfeeding and on the breastfeeding mum. So often what I find is mums just consuming the foods that they are known that are known to be galactagogues, but not having right. a really healthy diet. So galactagogues on their own are not necessarily going to help to stimulate breast milk production. It's that in addition to a healthy diet. Would you agree with right. that? I would definitely agree with that. Yeah, you can't just live off of oatmeal alone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> first and foremost your your milk production other than you know all the all the mother child you know nipple stimulation relationship to everything other than that part of it you know actual nutritional production of breast milk requires adequate amounts of calories and fluids simply put so if you're only prioritizing galactagogue foods but you're actually not consuming enough calories it's not going to help it's just like taking any galactagogue supplement like fenugreek or some of those other herbs, yeah, they can like boost milk production, but they're not going to sustain it if, if you're not consuming enough food yourself. Um, breastfeeding is very energetically demanding and also nutritionally demanding. So an exclusively breastfeeding mom, at least in the first six months of her baby's life, will burn about 500 additional calories just making breast milk. So I think people are really shocked in early postpartum how hungry they are. And then they're also faced with this bizarre, unrealistic pressure from society to like, quote unquote, bounce back, which Mm. doesn't make any sense because that's not physiologically how we work. (laughs) So, So some women find themselves frustrated that they're hungry and then intentionally under eating as a means to get to losing baby weight faster, which actually is all of this is counterproductive. To their, to their body goals and also counterproductive to breastfeeding because then you're put in this situation where your body's not getting enough food itself to make milk. The other thing about breastfeeding is that, you know, it requires a lot of nutrients as well. And that was something that I was, I wanted to look at the literature behind it because I feel like, I don't know, even for me, when I had my son, I went to a breastfeeding class taught by a really wonderful lactation consultant 
And she pretty much said, you know, no, there's no special, special way of eating you have to do when you're breastfeeding. Every mom makes the most nutritious milk for, for her baby. And, and that's it. You can eat anything. And it was like, yeah, but would, are, like, are some nutrients in breast milk affected by what a mom eats? Or, or is it not? Is, is it like your body's just going to sacrifice a, a mom's, you know, nutrient stores to always make good breast milk? And it turns out the answer is a little more nuanced because there are some nutrients that aren't necessarily affected by a mother's diet, meaning the milk will always contain adequate amounts, which includes things like folate. Um, however, there's a, a whole host of other nutrients, a, a, a lengthier list than the ones that are always adequate, which are affected by a mom's intake. And I'm very careful with how I go through the data on this in my book because I don't want to discourage mothers from breastfeeding. That's not my goal. I mean, as I was writing this book, I was still breastfeeding my son. And so I know how nutritionally, energetically, emotionally draining it can be as a new mom. And I don't want to discourage women. They're always going to be making, breast milk is always the best food for your baby. You can just make it a little bit more nutrient dense when your diet is also nutrient dense. And guess what? You also can recover faster from childbirth, meaning heal any, you know, incisions or tears or other things, help your skin regain elasticity, have better energy, support your thyroid health, all of those things by eating a nutrient dense diet. So um, when I go through that information, it's like not a means of um, making women feel bad. It's to really encourage them to take this time to take care of themselves. As many traditional cultures really emphasize, they, they usually had someone living with you or providing your food or cooking for you or taking care of you and in the early time when when you're a new mom and nursing around the clock and not sleeping and and all that stuff um so if you want to go through specifics we can i always like to sort of lay out <laughs> the, the general sphere here well what i'd like to do actually is is um run what i tell the moms through <laughs> <laughs> by you and get your sure. feedback on on what i'm saying because maybe i've um been misleading them as well but what i generally recommend is that they eat three meals a day mm -hmm. as and and three small snacks because most of them are feeding their baby an average of eight to ten times a day which is more or less three hourly and mm -hmm. every time they're feeding the baby their body goes into action to produce more milk and they usually find when they sit down to feed that they get both hungry and thirsty. So if it's yes. not a meal time for them to at least have a really healthy snack, whether that's half a banana or a little bit of hummus or um, some vegetable sticks or, or a small smoothie with, with fruits and, and leafy yeah. greens. And then I generally recommend that they include salmon at least twice a week, mm -hmm. avocado, coconut oil, and obviously leafy greens. I recommend that they have a bit of protein at every meal. I yeah. agree with all of the above. You will be very hungry when you're nursing, especially in the first month or so, because you're also recovering from childbirth, which either was, whether it was a, you know, natural labor or was a surgical birth, you, you, you still have a lot of physical recovery to do from that. You also need to replete yourself from the nutrients that were transferred to your baby during pregnancy. So there's a lot of nutrient repletion that needs to happen. You will be ravenously hungry and absolutely eat whenever you're hungry. So whether that's three meals and three snacks, or that's three meals and six snacks, like I don't care. You just want to make sure you're eating. And it is really easy to forget about your own needs when suddenly all effort 
focuses on the baby. So I often recommend that women plan to have shelf stable snacks if they don't have, you know, help in the house with them all the time, have shelf stable snacks near where they're nursing so that you have something there with you and like stash bottles of water (laughs) all over the house. So there's some by the bed, there's some by the couch, there's some by the rocking chair. So you're getting enough of all of those. I certainly agree on the protein thing. You do need quite a bit of protein to heal from birth. And it also tends to be stabilizing for your blood sugar levels. So you don't have as many blood sugar highs and lows, which you're, you're actually very prone to postpartum because you're, you're energetically using up so much of your nutrition and your blood sugar to produce breast milk. I mean, for women who are who have like diabetes pre-pregnancy who who have like required insulin for many many years, like their insulin needs plummet postpartum because their breasts are taking up so much glucose. Like they don't need as much insulin. <laughs> so just to sort of use that as a proxy, like you've got to be really refueling really filling your tank and trying to eat things that are satiating and and blood sugar stabilizing as much as possible. Otherwise, you'll just tank. Certainly, women don't need necessarily need to be low carb or anything, but they need to be consuming adequate amounts of high protein, high fat foods to stabilize them and just to get enough energy. So it is not a time to restrict anything. I love your list. The only thing I would add to that would be eggs. For sure. Oh, yeah. Um, because yeah, yeah. the choline, yeah, the choline and the protein eggs would be, you know, fantastic breakfast or if you like them hard boiled or whatever. Um, yeah, they're, they're great. And bone broth. That's the other thing. Yes. Bone yeah. broth is fabulous for healing. And mm. in a lot of traditional cultures, they really push brothy foods. A, mm. you're getting fluids built in you're getting electrolytes, but you're also getting that really important healing amino acid glycine, which is so good for your skin, for healing your incision or your tear, for helping your pelvic floor heal. And it's also just, you know, good for baby too. So yeah, bone broth is fabulous. Yeah, so important that and it makes such a difference. And I always say if they are ravenously hungry all the time and they're eating to hunger, then we know that everything is working well because all systems are working. As you're eating, yes. you know, you're constantly digesting that, you're making milk, you're feeding the baby. It's all good. I mean, I was shocked by how much I ate. I like my <laughs> husband brought me breakfast a few days postpartum and I like laughed in his face. I was like, I'm gonna need triple or quadruple that amount of food. Like, <laughs> you better be making another plate right now. Just so hungry. Lily, this has been a fantastic conversation and there's so much more that I could ask you. I have a list of what I call quick fire questions, a short, sharp one word answers wherever possible. And then we're going to end up and wrap up telling people how they can contact you and more information about where they can get hold of your book or even get hold of you if they want to work with you. So heading into our quick fire questions, who is your inspiration and why? It has to be my son. He's just so energetic and, and chipper. <laughs> Do you feel like a leader or a follower? A leader. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Be yourself. As a child, what did you wish to become when you grew up? Oh, a chef or a baker. Oh, at least you're still in the field of food then. So <laughs> always knew it was going that way. <laughs> what accomplishments are you most proud of? Right now, my son and my two books. 
Absolutely. I would say having just finished a book of my own, I know exactly how proud you can be of a couple of pages, but you know how much love, sweat and tears has gone into that. Oh, yes. And your favorite movie? Just because it's goofy and always makes me laugh, The Breakfast Club. <laughs> Great memories from the 80s. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what are you reading at the moment? The second edition of one of my colleagues' books called Digestive Health with Real Food. Your biggest influence? I guess, I guess I'll choose my father for this one. He's, uh, he never gives up. He's very steady. And last but not least, your favorite quotes. There's one from Walt Disney that I really like, which is the way to get started is to quit talking and begin doing. I love that. And you certainly have done that with your book, with two books, in fact. How can people get hold of your book? You can, both of my books are available on Amazon. That's the best way to get them unless you want to wholesale order, in which case reach, reach out directly. You can find my books on their respective websites, which is realfoodforpregnancy.com or realfoodforgd.com. And uh, you can find me on my website, which is lilynicholsrdn.com. Super. And I will be putting links to your website and to the books on the show notes so people can contact you. And I just want to thank you so much for joining me this morning and sharing all that wonderful information about optimal nutrition during pregnancy and generally in our everyday lives and certainly in for breastfeeding. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Virtual Midwife Podcast. The show is available on Audioboom, iTunes, Google Play, Radio Public and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed it, please share it and leave me a review. I love to hear your feedback and I'm always looking for inspirational and uplifting stories to share. Make sure you sign up on my website and social media channels and let's share the love. Thanks for listening. This is Karen Wilmot, The Virtual Midwife, signing off until next time.